Hello, it's Sally here on the final day of COP26 and Oscar is joining me to give a quick insight on the main takeaways from the jam-packed past two weeks. Before we start, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in throughout our COP26 series. A big thank you to all of our speakers who've joined us and especially our sponsor, Lion Trust, who helped to make this all possible. Hello, it's James and Sally here to let you all know about our podcast sponsor. This COP26 series of the UK CIF Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Lion Trust. We're delighted to have them involved. Lion Trust is a specialist fund management company that was founded in 1995. And as of July 2021, they had £34 billion in assets under management. Their aim is to have a positive impact on their investors, stakeholders and society. We're so pleased to have them on board for this series. Without the support of our partners, the podcast would not be able to happen. So without further interruption, let's get on with the episode. Oscar, I'll hand over to you now. Hi, Sally. Really pleased to be joining you um, in essentially this kind of wrap-up podcast uh, to summarise really what's gone on in these last two weeks at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. I suppose, Sally, heading into this summit, you know, a lot of us and observers were quite pessimistic on its prospects. You know, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson compared humanity to being, I suppose, five to one down, uh, making the analogy to, to a football score. Um, and, you know, all the analysis that we were seeing showed that the world wasn't on track to meet the Paris Agreement global temperature rise goals of between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees Celsius. So, you know, going into Glasgow, prospects seems rather bleak in terms of tackling the climate emergency. But actually, over the course of the two weeks, you know, we have seen some really amazing, momentous commitments made. Uh, you know, perhaps we'll get to this a little bit later in this episode in terms of, you know, ha- has it gone far enough? But, you know, we have seen, you know, net zero pledges being made by India, you know, albeit a bit too far away at 2070. But, you know, a lot of us wouldn't have expected that to be made. We've seen this momentous deal on reducing methane emissions from the United States and China, for example, just this week. Saudi Arabia set a net zero target as well. So, you know, undoubtedly, we've seen a lot, a lot of progress. But the question that, that we'll turn to later is whether this is enough to reach the Paris Agreement goals. You know, will it be enough? Will it really deliver progress? And I think that's something we, we can discuss uh, later over this podcast. Um, one key way, I think, of assessing progress for all of us at COP26 is to go back to the Prime Minister's mantra at the start of the summit, which was really about delivering international commitments and progress on the four issues of coal, cars, cash, and trees. This is very much the Prime Minister's slogan heading in. When it comes to coal, we saw pledge from about 40 plus countries uh, to shift away from coal. And this positively included the major coal using nations such as Poland, Vietnam and Chile. Um, The signatories here committed to ending all investment in new coal power generation domestically and internationally. Um, There was an agreement to phase out coal power study in the 2030s for major economies and the 2040s for the poorer nations. And also an agreement to rapidly scale up the deployment of clean power generation and make a just transition away from coal power so that the transition would benefit workers and communities in the signatory nations. We also saw 28 new members sign up to the world's largest alliance on phasing out coal. This is the Powering Past Coal Alliance, the PPCA, of which UK CIF uh, is a proud member. 
Uh, and this is an alliance that was launched and co-chaired by the UK. So as part of this alliance, we now have over $17 trillion, I think it is, of assets now committed uh, to the phase-out goals of the PPCA. So looking at, at the first area of coal, you know, a series of very positive commitments here by countries, but I suppose also there are questions around, you know, around the end date. So we've got the lengthy end date for phasing out coal power in the 2030s and the 2040s for major and developing nations, respectively. You know, are, are these targets perhaps too far uh, in, in the future to make progress against the Paris goals? There was also crucially a lack of support from China, the US, Japan and India for the world's biggest coal consumers um, as part of these agreements. And it does still look like China uh, will be relying, at least in the short term, um, as it continues its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, in relying on coal-fired um, coal power plants uh, domestically. Um, I guess to take the second uh, part of, of the PM's mantra in terms of uh, cars, um, the UK before COP26 had announced in its net zero sector strategy its plans to end the sale of new petrol and diesel car sales by 2030 and new petrol and diesel heavy goods vehicles by 2040, which gave some momentum uh, going into the COP summit. On cars at COP, we saw new declarations signed by more than 30 countries and dozens of businesses, which is really great to see. We had a declaration stating that all new vehicle sales should be zero emission by 2035 in leading markets and 2040 in all other markets. We saw major car manufacturers and businesses signing this pledge. This included Ford, GM, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Jaguar Land Rover, Volvo, among many others. Like, I suppose, um, Cole, Sally, that there are caveats to these uh, commitments and announcements on, on cars, very sadly. So we saw the world's three largest car markets, the US, Germany, and China, not signing the declaration. And also there was perhaps a lack of investment uh, committed to make the transition to zero emissions transport actually practical in reality. So, so for instance, a lack of clarity over the investment in the charging infrastructure to ensure that the global public demand uh, for electric vehicles um, can be met. So this was a little disappointing, perhaps. Um, on the third area of cash, um, this is an area that I think we all were quite worried about heading into the summit, and it was actually confirmed in the run-up to summit that we would not meet the $100 billion target per year in climate finance to support developing nations make progress against climate change and climate resilience. So this was a goal that was really agreed initially in 2009, I think it was, and reaffirmed under the Paris Agreement in 2015, with parties to the agreement committing to deliver this goal by the state. Um, but very sadly, there was some OECD analysis that we saw that showed that developing countries, although making progress against this $100 billion goal, uh, wouldn't actually hit the target by 2021, but would probably meet it in 2023. Um, and this is a really disappointment because you know, climate finance does play a really critical role in helping developing nations fight climate change and adapt to the negative impacts posed by climate change and climate change risks. Um, so this is a probably... At the moment, Sally says one of the big major disappointments of COP26. And then on the final area identified uh, by the Prime Minister at the start of COP, uh, this was to do with trees. Um, and perhaps it's, um, you know, to take that a bit more broadly and not uh, take the PM's uh, focus on trees too literally, perhaps. Um, on nature and biodiversity, this is perhaps where we saw uh, the most promising commitments made uh, by, by countries here. Um, it, was, it was the first major announcement at COP26 on, on nature and biodiversity. We had world leaders representing more than 100 nations, containing around 85% of the world's forest, forests, committing to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by 2030. We had countries such as Brazil and Indonesia, 
which account for almost half of tropical deforestation taking part in this initiative. Uh, and very positively, also the commitment will be supported by a pledge to provide almost £9 billion of public finance from 12 countries, including the UK. Uh, we also saw some progress uh, on the new forests, agriculture and commodity trade statement, known as FACT. We had countries, um, or governments, I should say, representing around 75% of global trade in key commodities that can threaten forests, such as palm oil, cocoa and soya, signing up to the FACT statement. And, and really, this means that uh, around 28 governments are now committed to implementing a common set of actions to deliver more sustainable trade and reduce the pressure on forests, including offering greater support for smallholder farmers and improving the transparency of supply chains. Um, we were also really pleased to see UK SIF members involved uh, in the financial services um, aspect of, of this agreement. We had about 30 financial services firms committing to work on eliminating agricultural community-driven deforestation by 2025 through their engagement activities. So there are three parts to this, one of which was engagement with corporates focusing on deforestation, two, um, publicly disclosing risks and progress on efforts to tackle deforestation, and thirdly, um, investors committing to increase their investment in nature-based solutions. So all, all very positive indeed, Sally. And overall, on nature, you know, it has featured very prominently at COP26. You know, few previous climate cops have discussed nature and deforestation and deforestation on the scale that we've seen in Glasgow. Um, but like with the other areas, perhaps a few caveats and disappointments. So you might have seen that the uh, Indonesia's environment minister uh, tweeted uh, the other day that they may not actually abide by the deforestation pledge that they agreed to. And there are also some questions uh, from many commentators and observers over indeed how the pledges will be enforced. There doesn't seem to be an enforcement or ratchet mechanism uh, to punish those countries which have signed this uh, deforestation agreement to keep it to its terms. Um, so I've kind of rattled through, I think, progress by countries in the UK against um, the Prime Minister's own four tests for COP26. But I suppose, you know, how does this all add up? You know, what is the kind of big picture? You know, we've seen undoubted progress in areas from commitments on deforestation and nature to coal power, transport emissions and action on methane emissions. Um, and to touch on the recent China-US agreement that I mentioned at the start of our podcast, uh, you know, China and the US are the world's two biggest um, emitters of carbon emissions. Um, in this agreement, it was quite a dramatic press conference in, in many ways. Uh, both countries said they would work together to achieve the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature goal set out in the Paris Agreement. And there were pledges also on close cooperation throughout the 2020s on cutting emissions. And we saw the a commitment to a joint working group to meet regularly to address the climate crisis over the next decade. So as I said, you know, progress in many areas. Um, a really great cooperation agreement between China and the United States. But I guess, you know, where does this all add up to, Sally? You know, you know, does this really deliver us and keep the 1.5 degree target, you know, within reach uh, of all of us? You know, we've seen a series of different studies saying very, very different things. But I think the most recent study we've now seen, Sally, from the Carbon Action, Action Tracker has said that the impact of all the commitments of COP including all the different sectoral plans and commitments, will close the emissions gap for 2030 between the current projected emissions and a 1.5 degree pathway by around 9%, um, you know, which is very positive and it shows that we are getting closer towards that goal and perhaps that actually is within reach. Uh, however, even with all these new pledges and initiatives, global emissions, according to the Carbon Action Tracker, are still expected to be almost twice as high in 2030 
as necessary for a 1.5 degree compatible pathway. So clearly, you know, there's, there's a lot of work still to be done. And I think some of this clarity is still awaited by all of us in this final COP26 text agreement. This is the kind of really crucial document which will be agreed by all countries at the conclusion uh, of COP26, which will hopefully answer some of the questions on whether the 1.5 degree Celsius target can be kept alive. We've seen a draft document published by the UK as president of COP, and this will really need to be kind of negotiated and hammered out in very kind of late night sessions by all the different delegations uh, in Glasgow. So Sally, it's probably worth turning to uh, the finance day, which was one of the most uh, awaited moments by many UK CIF members and others, you know, critically, you know, the role of finance is much more in the spotlight than it has ever been before by, by policymakers um, and the wider public. And a lot of this has been, been spearheaded by the work of Mark Carney and, and the GFANS um, Alliance. Um, so it's worth really dwelling and spending a few minutes, perhaps, on, you know, what were the key takeaways um, for our listeners coming out of the Finance Day on day three of COP26? Um, you know, one of the main announcements that we saw uh, at Finance Day came in the form of a pledge by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak for the UK to be the world's first net zero aligned financial services centre. Um, the Private Finance Advisory Group, which was an independent group advising the Climate Change Committee, towards the end of 2020 made a very similar call to the Chancellor to adopt this pledge. And then we saw this call reiterated following that report from the advisory group by a number of think tanks and others for the UK to commit to be the world's first net zero financial system. And in, and in a way that has really helped um, shape the Chancellor's final announcement at uh, the Finance Day at, at COP26. It came as a surprise as many, uh, to many of us in the sector and more widely, um, you know, UK CIF, we very much, you know, support and, and warmly applaud this ambition, you know, as the first major economy to legislate to, to cut emissions to net zero, but by 2050, we see it as a natural step for the UK to take in its climate leadership journey. I think for us at UK CIF and many of our members, we'll need a bit of clarity on, I suppose, you know, how can we take the sector there? You know, what are some of the actions and policies and steps that will be needed to advance the progress toward, to advance the sector towards this world leading ambition and we look forward to working with with the chancellor and others on defining what does a net zero financial services sector mean uh in reality and how do we define some of the components that make that up such as a good quality transition plan um so uk cif will be you know considering some work with our members in the coming months to look at kind of defying and adding some meat on the bones to help uh, the chancellor define this world leading ambition in the coming months um I mentioned transition plans. There were some details published by the Chancellor at Finance Day on the proposal to require asset managers, asset owners, and listed companies to publish transition plans on a compliant explained basis initially. But then it looks like a mandatory approach will then be taken, which will require parliamentary legislation. We'll see a transition plan task force set up shortly, bring together industry, academia, regulators, and others to create a gold standard for transition plans to help the UK deliver on this mandatory commitment. And really, the decision to form this task force recognises the issue of a lack of consensus at the moment on what a good quality transition plan looks like. So um, we'll be eagerly awaiting the initial report from the task force by the end of next year, and the government will envisage firms to start publishing their climate transition plans in 2023, I believe it is. Um, I suppose other uh, key policy things and measures that were announced at COP26 Finance Day, we saw confirmation from the Financial Conduct Authority on its Disclosures and Labels Advisory Group to advise on SDR and Sustainable Investment Labels. So this will be um, helping guide the regulator on the design of the Sustainability Disclosure Requirements Regime, SDR, 
and it's a sustainable investment labeling system for investment products. And, uh, you know, UK SIF was confirmed as a member of the DLAG, which we're obviously delighted to be contributing to, and we'll be closely consulting our members as part of our goal, a part of our involvement with this group. So at Finance Day, we saw a discussion paper published by the regulator as part of its work in these two areas. Um, the paper notes that the regulator will consider the extent to which SDR could remain compatible with the EU's SFDR rules, and also the extent to which existing initi industry initiatives, such as those from the British Standards Institute and the Investment Association, could actually be leveraged um, in the formation of the UK's own labelling system. We also saw from the regulator, Sally, um, the publication of its ESG strategy. This essentially outlines how the regulator will deliver on the ESG outcomes from its recent business plan. Um, we saw in the strategy a note that the FCA will ensure its rules adopt a broad ESG perspective beyond climate change, which is something um, UK SIF and our members strongly support. We also saw a declaration in the strategy that the FCA will look to implement regulations that align with global frameworks as far as possible. And actually having this harmonization and alignment with global standards and rules is really important for financial services, which, you know, as many of you know, is a very global industry serving clients and savers across many different jurisdictions. We also saw a note around consulting with stakeholders in the first half of next year on promoting credible transition plans and also considering how the regulator could facilitate an industry-led approach on the issue of shareholder votes on companies' transition plans as well. So, you know, lots for our members and others to digest in the FCA's ESG strategy. I mentioned the importance of harmonization of global standards. Um, we saw the IFRS Foundation announce the launch of its International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB. We had the chair of the IFRS Foundation, Ariki Likanen, confirm the formation of the ISSB on Finance Day at COP26. Uh, Mr. Lakaiden stated the Value Reporting Foundation and Climate Disclosure Standards Board will be consolidated into this new board while highlighting the publication of these two prototype standards for climate-related disclosures and general sustainability disclosures, which should help the ISSB get a head start with some of its work, which uh, will begin um, early next year. We also had an announcement uh, from the Chancellor and Mark Carney noting the percentage of global financial assets that are now aligned to net zero. Uh, this has come through GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And there was, you know, a little bit of scepticism, perhaps, from many in the media and others on actually which percentage of assets uh, would be aligned to net zero. Um, but in any case, uh, leaving that uh, contentious uh, issue <laughs> aside for, for today, perhaps, Sally, uh, the Chancellor and Marcani in their statement warmly welcome the progress um, to rewire the global financial system towards net zero. And the figure that they reached in terms of assets that were aligned with net zero was, I think it was $130 trillion, around 40% of global financial assets aligned with the Paris goals. Uh, and finally, on Finance Day, we saw a reiteration of the UK government's commitments to set out a net zero sectoral strategy for financial services. And this will mean perhaps even more policies and measures uh, with direct implications for the financial services sector coming next year. So, you know, clearly um, policymakers are not letting up on the role of financial services in, in combating the climate crisis. And I think, you know, there's many positive announcements here, particularly on global harmonization of standards, which, you know, our sector can, can really warmly applaud. Uh, but equally, you know, a lot, a lot of work um, still for us to do to make sure these, these things can all work effectively for our industry. Um, so, yeah, overall, a, a, hu a huge amount to take away from Finance Day uh, at COP, Sally. Thanks.
Thanks, Oscar, for that. That's a great insight into the big happenings of COP26. When we have the final uh, COP text agreement, we will also have an episode where we sort of touch upon that and discuss what that means. In the meantime, I hope you have all found listening to our COP26 podcast series as interesting as we found producing it. Listen back to all the settings you may have missed. They are all brilliant, although I might be slightly biased on that. Like, subscribe, rate this podcast on whatever platform you're using and watch this space for more exciting sessions in future. We can also be found on Twitter at UKSIF, all one word. Until next time. 